minds with the chip inside Like a Lincoln digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, in which we're taking a look at a recording from the B-Side San Antonio, Texas 2018 conference. We're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented and as a reminder to add this conference to your bucket list of events to attend, though if you're not able to, there's always YouTube. You can go to youtube.com forward slash B-Sides SATX or for more information about the conference, go to bsidessatx.com for their homepage and there's a wealth of information there for you. Now, all of us at DMP are really looking forward to seeing you there at DEF CON, Black Hat USA, and B-Sides Las Vegas here in the next few weeks which is also known as Hacker Summer Camp. Now we'll be conducting interviews, performing implants, and just hanging out, meeting new people, while learning new things at the three different conferences. So if you see one of us, please feel free to stop by and say hi. But before we get to these clips of the talks from B-Side San Antonio, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So feel free to check them out at DangerousThings.com. Now, if you or your organization would is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at DangerousMinds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Doing that a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm a penetration tester. I primarily test web apps, and I've been doing that for about the last four years. Uh, I also teach the uh, web app pen testing course uh, for SANS at the mentor level. Um, I blog, I, I tweet, I write a lot of code. So um, you know, feel free to connect with me and, and uh, you know, meet up. All right. So as I mentioned, attacking authentication web apps. So that's it's a really uh, you know wide topic. So I'm going to touch on all of these things and occasionally on some defense, but mostly it's going to be an offensive talk, uh, but I will throw in some nuggets, you know, so if you're a developer or maybe like just you own the system or something like that, give you an idea of certain risks uh, where these things are at. Um, the reason I like always attacking, attacking authentication is because it's, you know, ubiquitous in all of, in everything. You know, every modern app has some sort of piece and it's usually a username password type thing where you enter it and then, you know, you have some sort of privileges. Uh, historically, users are bad at choosing passwords. Not everybody, uh, but you know, really you just need one user out of the several thousand that might live on the system to gain access to it. Um, scanners, so a lot of people, you know, they are scan and forget type things. They scan it, they say it's secure. Um, scanners really do a bad job at testing anything authentication. They're, they might be good at cross-site scripting and SQL injection, any sort of those other flaws, but authentication, they're bad because most web apps are made differently, uh, so it doesn't do a good job. Um, audits don't accurately measure risk. Basically, if you've ever done like an audit or a pen test of something that's in a non-production environment, user accounts aren't real. So it's just a bunch of dummy accounts on there. So rarely does an auditor or even tester go into like doing passwords attacks against anything. 
So the methodology I'm going to use at least for this talk is just some basic recon scanning, then enumerating users, uh, testing the account lockout and trying to bypass it, uh, different password attacks, and then uh, I'll explore some other authentication authorization flaws that are really uh, unique among web apps. So for recon, it's a big, big topic. I'm only going to touch on uh, subdomain enumeration and port scanning that is very web specific. And the only reason I'm even doing this is because uh, ideally, if you were if you were had authorization to test, you know, example.com, you know, you have this big scope. You're going to want to find as many uh, subdomains as possible of example.com, or you're going to want to find as many places that you can uh, attack the certain login. Authentication doesn't always live on ADN 443 as far as the ports go, so you want to be able to check lots of different places. Uh, so there's several ways to enumerate subdomains. Uh, the, the easiest one is being a, a zone transfer, which you know your a DNS zone uh, record or a zone file is just has a list of records where the IP addresses correspond to the host name. So if you can get a hold of that, that zone file, you can basically have all of their subdomains. Uh, other ways to do it is just search engine reconnaissance. So you know Google Dorks basically you do site colon example.com and then all of the search results that for example.com will show up like mail.example.com and, and so on. And then there's various tools that do this sort of stuff for you. So, you know, for an example of a, a zone transfer, you would just go to whois.net and you'd look up your target, and then you'd see the name servers in the bottom, and that's who you're going to try to transfer uh, that zone record from. So, you know, this, this particular one had it set up correctly where I'm using NSLOOKUP here to try to transfer, a, uh, to try to do a zone transfer to my own computer. And zone transfers are typically only allowed between um, two DNS servers, which makes sense. You don't want anybody to get the zone file. So this one's configured correctly. Uh, a canonical example for one that is not configured correctly lets me do a zone transfer. So you can see um, you know, the, the commands for NSLOOKUP, and then you, it goes through and it shows the different subdomains for, for this particular contrived server. Uh, I mentioned that there's other places to, or other ways to find subdomains, uh, different Different uh, internet sites like CRT.sh and DNS Dumpster, they do internet research, um, and so they're constantly scanning the internet and finding out subdomains and recording things, and they offer basically uh, free resources for anybody to look up a domain and see a whole bunch of subdomains. Um, VirusTotal has it just because um, you know, you're know you looking up threats from a particular domain, you want to see the subdomains that it's there. Uh, there's Google Dorth, like I said, the, the site direct is for it, and then you can also do brute forcing subdomains, which is essentially taking a word list and running it against um, you know, your target and whatever resolves, obviously that means you know the particular subdomain. Um, there's tools that do all of this stuff for you. Uh, probably um, the most complete would be DNS Recon. It does, I think, all of those things that's in the list, including attempting zone transfers. It's in Metasploit. Uh, Sublister is also popular. Um, you know, I wrote one, does find subdomains, which this is sort of the output for it. And you can see that at the top part, it, it's basically querying those resources, uh, you know, CRT.ish and DNS dumpster and putting a list of subdomains together that you can go ahead and try to do. Uh, so lots of resources for finding subdomains, but the whole goal is to just get a, um, you know, a wide breadth of login locations that you can try to test the authentication. So once you do have a, a wide you know, a range of subdomains that you can go ahead and test, you're going to want to look for uh, open ports that indicate just web services. Sure, you want to scan them uh, for all of the other things, you know, your FTP and Telnet and it, all of those type things. But you know, what I'm focusing on is purely the web ports. 
And if you ever use uh, something like Nmap, uh, the default scan is just a thousand of the most common ports. And the thousand most common ports though doesn't actually cover all of the web ports. So if you're either going to want to kind of get a custom list of ports you want your scanner to scan that is dealing with web stuff, um, or you know I wrote a couple of tools to do that for you that will just scan whatever you tell it to. Whatever URL you go to, it'll scan it. So that's the sidekick and get website info. One's Python, one's PowerShell. Um, it basically just helps prioritize the the sites because it goes out to all these different URLs. It'll record the title of uh, the website as well as um, the server type. And the reason the reason this ends up being important is because if you have a really really wide scope and you scan a whole network, you'll get a lot of garbage for web ports. You'll get like a thousand printers or something like that. And so you want to have the title of the printer so you can just immediately eliminate it from your list and not have to waste your time by browsing to it. Um, so to generate a list of, of URLs for web ports, there's, there's another tool that I wrote. It just simply takes a domain name and appends a, a ton of uh, different web ports that I've sort of come up with, either through uh, you know, reading up on things or you know, Nmap has a specific ones that it identifies as HTTP or HTTPS. And this is the output of one of the tools. Just you know, give you an idea, it gives you the title of the site and the URL and the server and the redirect URL. So anything like that that can keep you organized and, and eliminate the the stuff that's unnecessary, well, at the same time, you know, if it gives you a title to some popular, um, you know, some popular open source um, content management system or something like that, you can kind of take the steps to do further enumeration on it. If you, if I, you identify it as being old or an old version of something, you might, there might be a public ex exploit or something available. And that's, that's why we do this. You know, it's, um, if you find some commercial product, a lot of times if it's on a non-standard port, it might have been set up for some development purposes or some test things. So you want to try default passwords. And if you get in there, um, you know, that's great. Maybe there'll be data on it, maybe not. Maybe there's something that you can, that you can use to go further. Uh, as I said, it might be vulnerable to known exploits where you can sort of do the easy job and look at Metasploit and say, yep, it's vulnerable to something. Um, and just in the end, it, it provides more targets, which provides more opportunities to do all the things that we're going to learn about now. So onto enumerating users. Uh, this shouldn't be so crazy at first. You guys, this should all be basic common sense type stuff. But if you own an application or if you're a developer, there's hidden risks that go along with all of these, um, all of these features of an application that makes it more user friendly or you know, increases the user experience. So first thing you look for in visual changes, and the whole goal for user enumeration is to gather a list of users where I do not know things. So uh, you know, at Microsoft, I take an, an invalid uh, user, so not a real account. And Microsoft will tell me that the account doesn't exist, right? So that, that makes sense. And with a real account, it'll prompt me for a password. So wow, now I know a username. That's great. Uh, so in theory, if you have an application that just tells you like this, you can just get a really large list of usernames and bust through it and record the ones that, that give you a password prompt. So then there's applications that, you know, in fact, a lot of applications these days are designed not to tell you the username or the password. It's which one. Um, so you know, it's letting me know that the username or password did not match. Right. And even for an invalid user, so this is a valid user, this is an invalid user, it's the same, same error message. Uh, if you were to measure the length of the HTTP response, it would be the same length too. But under, under the hood, so this is once again a valid user, under the hood this is what it ended up looking like. So there was a little XML part where it showed me a login status and for this one it was minus two. But for the other one, for the not a real user, it had a minus one login status. So all things were equal as far as the error message displayed, uh, but this, is, this sort of thing let me know that a user was valid or not valid. And um, you know, for tools and stuff like that, you know, Burp Suite and Zap both have a, a comparison feature where you can take the HTTP responses and see what's different. 
So in this case, uh, you know, I had mentioned that the response length is for the same, and um, so just looking at the response length alone would not tell you any differences. All right, so this is a timing-based thing. So on the right is just a little timer. On the left is me trying to log in with not a real account. It actually took 10 seconds to respond. Um, this is, I mean, this, this side of it took a particularly long time. It's more common where you see that it's just maybe a second versus a half second. Um, and so what you would typically do to account for latency is just kind of bust through a bunch of accounts really quick. And the ones that are consistently returning at a different time, that's the ones that, that either you know, are valid or invalid, whatever you think. Um, and this, you know, in this particular one, it only took one second for, for a valid username to, to get checked. All right, so then there's the sort of features, you know, even, even this, this part is secure, right? Like it says username and password do not match, so it doesn't tell me which one's which. This is for an invalid account, but a valid account, it would give me the same error message. It would just tell me username and password do not match. So it's designed to be secure and not give up any users. Unfortunately, the forgot password link doesn't do that. So not real account, it tells you you can't find a user. You get a real account, it gives you, you know, the prompt for the password reset. So they built the front end to be secure and not give up any information, probably because they had some sort of audit finding for it eventually, but then you have this, this feature that's just there. Uh, and you know, it, it's a feature, I mean, I, think, I don't think you can design a password or a, you know, a security questions things to, to do anything else otherwise. Like it's gonna have to tell you the user's there. So this is one of those usability features that like, listen, it's, it's, it's the risk right there. And, you know, I mentioned there's different uh, ways to generate usernames if you don't know what you're going to do. So there's, like, tools on GitHub. There's tools in Burp. You can just code something yourself where you do, you know, first name dot last name from, from your Outlook uh, or something like that. Um, there's ones that, like, take the census data so you can figure out the most common names. Uh, the ones that have been most, most effective for me, though, is either metadata or just calling the help desk and asking. So for, for metadata, you just... Look for a file like you know you do your your Google search operator and you do um, you know file type PDF for example.com and so when you pull down the PDF or the Word document's probably better uh, you can pull metadata from it and it'll tell you like the username that created that that file and so that sort of gives you an idea of of what the naming convention might be so you can plan your attack yeah but calling the help desk is ask uh, and asking is, has been the best. All right, so the, the, the defense is just that a generic error message as you've seen, you know, letting you know your user account or password is incorrect. And for a forgot password message, I mean, if you're doing security questions, I think you're kind of stuck the way it is. But if you're not, it's one of those send an email regardless or show you that an email might have been sent if you are a valid user. Uh, just something that doesn't give things away. All right, so other built-in enumeration features, um, you know, menus, APIs, and just generic uh, commands that might be run. Uh, for, for menus, you know, if you have access to an application, a lot of times once you have access, there's a whole, they, they just give away the rest of the users, you know, the, all of the usernames and, and even their roles too. Uh, so like this is, this is HipChat, it's sort of like a Slack, you know, if you're there, you can, you can tell whoever's on it. Um, and that's usually because they're using some sort of APIs, you know, whenever you press buttons, it, it makes a web request and, and, and gets a bunch of users and filters them and queries them. And so if you see any sort of uh, APIs, you want to go ahead and test them. Um, a lot of APIs don't require authentication if it's just something like enumerating users. So that's sort of one thing that, that you would look for. Uh, so yeah, the rule of thumb is basically, you know, you want to know your own application. And if you, have, if you have one of these applications, just know that it gives up all your users and things like that. It's not necessarily the biggest deal in the world, but it's a risk to know about. Uh, and, you know, testing your logins. So you've seen some of the use cases with invalid usernames and valid passwords and so on and so forth. 
you know, if you own one of these things, you're a developer, just, just check them to see, uh, see what they give up. All right, so don't want the numerating users onto testing account lockout. So if you have a bunch of usernames at this point, we want to try to start guessing passwords. But first, determining the lockout policy is kind of big. Uh, most applications have an account lockout policy. And, you know, if you're a tester or something like that, you don't want to lock out a bunch of normal accounts. Um, so it's one of those things that you need to know. But once you do figure out the lockout policy, we can begin testing a little bit further. So once again, the easiest way that, that I think uh, to figure out the account lockout policy is call the help desk if there's a help desk number and just ask them how many, how many times because uh, they're, they're there to help and they'll probably just tell you. Uh, but otherwise, you can research the framework. If you have some sort of well-known framework, you can sort of look it up, hope there's a, a default setting and, and hope that's the right one. Um, you do have some applications that'll tell you like uh, as soon as you fail a login once, it'll say you have five attempts remaining before we lock your account. Uh, and then sort of the last case is you just keep trying until it either gives you some indication that you're locked out or not. So to start bypassing stuff, when you log into things, one of the first things I do is I look for client side counters. So the way you can imagine a lockout works as far as code is concerned is, you know, when this username fails a login, increment the failed login counter. And when the failed login counter is greater than three, lock out the user or something like that. So that's supposed to be done on the, on the server side. Clients shouldn't be able to affect that at all. But in some cases, they will put a counter on the client side. And so, you know, this is my first attempt at logging in. If you guys aren't familiar with HTTP, this is just a post request. So this is what your browser is doing in the hood when, or under the hood when you're trying to log into something. Uh, so, you know, a post sort of means the, the body of the request where uh, all of my credentials are going to be is going to be in the body where other people won't be able to see it. But that's what this is. So I failed the login, and then when I tried to log in again, my counter was already incremented to two. So it kind of gave me an idea that maybe this C equals two is actually a counter. Uh, so to bypass it, I just set the C to, to equal one the entire time, and I was able to continually uh, try to guess passwords against these users. So the other thing, uh, you know, I mentioned that, it, that counter is typically associated with the username, and it's associated server side in the database. Um, other times, they will actually give you a cookie first when you first go to the site. They'll give you a cookie, and then they'll associate the counter with that particular cookie. Um, idea, you know, the idea is once you get a new, um, if you do log in successfully, they give you a new cookie, so it doesn't matter. But in this case, you know, try, sometimes trying to just delete your cookies will let you um, bypass the account lockout altogether. Uh, the other thing that you can do is try using basic authentication. So if you don't know what basic authentication is, um, You'll see it a lot if you go to a website and when you get the initial pop-up where it says authorization required and um, you, know, you put in your username password. Underneath the hood, uh, you're actually, well, sorry, this is, so this is a regular authentication and this is basic authentication, but the important part is the response here. So when I try to log in normally, I get this 302, which is they're redirecting me back to login, sort of an indication that I failed to log in on this one. But if I'm using basic authentication, I get an unauthorized. And the reason it's doing that is because it's actually interpreting these credentials. So like I was mentioning with basic authentication, uh, all it is is it's your username and your password uh, with colon delimited or delimited with um, that's base64 encoded. And it goes with every request. Your browser stores this as the authorization header and it goes on every subsequent request to whatever domain. So when I got this 401 here as opposed to on the previous slide where it was a 302, what I know then is that my credentials are being interpreted. So that it's processing them in some way. And when something like this happens, it's sort of like an unexpected authentication. Like they don't expect you to be using uh, basic authentication, but they do allow for it. So in this way, several times I've been able to bypass the account lockout because they don't have any counters set up for, for basic auth. All right, and sort of a, 
I'll, I'll, kind of a cool bug is so this is this is the this is a commercial identity management product, and you know it's set up in such a way that even when you lock yourself out, you get username and password do not match. So um, it it stays true the entire time of not letting you know the username. It doesn't let you know you're locked out at all. I could guess a thousand passwords, uh, and as long as I'm failing those attempts, it's just going to give me the same message. But the bug was once you get the password right, if you're locked out. It gives you this, so it gives you an error letting you know that you're locked out. Which, I mean, I'm sure somebody had to find that before, but they're like, okay, well, you're locked out, you're good, you know. But you know, when you think about it, is if it's giving you a completely different error when you got the wrong password the entire time, and then when you get this, it's correct. That means you know the password now. And since this was an identity management site, it was a single sign-on site. So like, this is where they set the passwords, and then all of you know, this was the single sign-on password. So once I knew their password here, I knew their password everywhere. Um, and on top of that, I could just call the help desk and I said, hey, I, I'm this person and I locked, you know, I locked my account. You don't have to reset my password. I know my password, just unlock my account. And that worked. So um, there's that or, you know, if, if it would have automatically unlocked, this one wouldn't have, but you can just wait for it to unlock itself. So if you find that bug, it's pretty cool. All right, so then other places that evaluate uh, credentials. So basically these are places that uh, usually, usually you have to have access to the application, so this is kind of a place to brute force somebody else's password and bypassing that lockout. And the way you end up doing that is you look for places where you're using the password again. And the most common ones, I kind of mentioned account creation, when you set a password for the first time. Um, a lot of times it checks whether or not a password already exists for some reason. Uh, password resets, they always check whether you're, you know, when you're resetting your password, you have to put in your old password. Um, and that's, that's the case on this one. So uh, in this application, it had an update password spot. Um, I could go to it, and as soon as I entered the old password and I clicked down on the box, it, you know, it triggered some JavaScript and made an AJAX request. So it's making a, an HTTP request in the background with my old password to verify whether or not the old password is correct. So it's doing this, and the request, it, it was a really poorly designed app, so the request was actually a GET request. So this is, it's bad to have any sort of credentials in a GET request, but this was the URL that I could go to to see what was going on behind the scenes. And so it was verify password, and the queue was the, my old password, which, you know, in this case, it was bad pass, and, and it has my user ID next to it. And so if I put in a bad password there, you know, an incorrect password, it returns back password enter does not match current password, and that's the error message that would show up on the other screen, you know, if I were doing this correctly. So a blank response, though, indicates success, you know, like I got the correct password. So anybody could go to this page, though, and just cycle through user IDs and guess passwords, and this one didn't have a lockout associated with it. So while the website, you know, three invalid log logins would lock you out, for this check password spot, did not. All right, so that covers the testing account lockout. So now on to the password attacks. All right, so four different types I'm going to talk about. Um, a lot of these may not be new to you, but some of them might. So for a continuous guessing attack, uh, you know, a lot of people would call it brute force. You know, an actual brute force would take a really long time. That's something you can do when you're cracking hashes but not guessing passwords over HTTP because it takes a long time. Uh, so it's typically just a dictionary attack. You have a hybrid, you have a dictionary that has numbers and letters and whatever the password policy of the organization is, you throw on things. Um, the downside of this is if you haven't bypassed account lockout, you're going to lock something out if you try a dictionary worth of, you know, passwords against somebody. So a lot of people use what's called password spraying, which is where they take a large list of users and they try a very small amount of passwords, typically under the threshold of whatever the account lockout policy is. And this ends up being really effective and because you're, you're not really worried about testing, testing the, uh, 
the super difficult passwords, you're testing easy stuff. Like, you know, month, year, August 2017, exclamation point, where it meets everything, but it, it still meets the, uh, you know, the, all of the password requirements. And then, you know, keyboard walks for the people who think they're clever. Um, those are great too, you know, just kind of up and down the keyboard, whatever meets the requirement, but still there. Uh, those end, like the keyboard walk ones are really great because it ends up being like important people, like system administrators or, or security personnel or something like that because they just get jaded and bored and they, they walk up and down the keyboard. Uh, so those are, those are my favorite. But the, the, you know, the data I have on this is, you know, around every 2,000 accounts guessed or usernames guessed, I end up getting, some, getting, getting access to something. All right, so the defense to this obviously is, you know, MFA. That's sort of like the whole talk, the defense is MFA. If you use MFA, most of this stuff you won't have a problem with. Uh, a CAPTCHA, so rate, limit, rate limiting all of the requests. Um, nobody's going to want to go through and guess passwords by hand. Um, and the blah, 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 educating users. All right, so logging, though. <laughs> so I mentioned logging, and this is the important part. So for logging, uh, I worked with a couple socks when I'm guessing passwords, and I say, hey, all right, I'm guessing passwords. Can you see me? And they say, no. And I said, okay, well, don't you notice a big spike in, in requests to, to, for authentication? They're like, yeah, but what they were doing like almost every time is, you know, this, this, is a, this is a normal architecture, I'd say. People connect over the internet and then it gets load balanced into your applications. The problem is, you know, they were querying these web server logs, but all of the requests looks like it's coming from the load balancer. So if you don't have a pass through on your load balancer that's taking the actual client IP addresses, it's not going to do you any good because otherwise you'll you know, do something stupid and like blacklist your load balancer and then you won't have any traffic at all. So always just make sure that you're actually getting the true source of your client IPs. Uh, otherwise you won't be able to stop anybody. And yes, there's always the defense that they can just move to another IP address and that's true, but slow them down a little bit. All right, so this one you may not have heard of. I call it indirect password guessing. Uh, it's what happens when you get an error message like this. You know, we've seen all the previous ones where it says, you know, incorrect username or password or incorrect username or whatever, but this one just says, um, actually, I'm sorry, this one is invalid. This is what it says normally, but this is the weird one. Okay, no, that's, that's the weird one. All right, you do not have the necessary permissions. So all the other use cases, same sort of error, and then all of a sudden I get this weird error. It doesn't let me into the application, but it says I do not have the necessary permissions. So trying to figure out what that means. All right, so then you gotta kind of think about how um, web application architecture is, and I know this is kind of poor, but you might have a web app that is drawing from some sort of LDAP database, maybe as a primary or a secondary, but it does have some sort of LDAP that it might be tied to. And this usually isn't the organization's like real LDAP, this is like a replication of their LDAP. And the whole idea is like you don't want anybody to be able to just like hit your Outlook web app portal and, and uh, lock out everybody's accounts, right? So it's just replicated usernames and roles and stuff like that, not, not the actual one. But the, the fact still remains that you have, like everybody's credentials are with an LDAP. And you gotta think like, all right, maybe there's, let's, let's say this web app is GitHub. And there's a, a GitHub group on your LDAP and only people who can access GitHub, they have to be a part of the group. So indirect password guessing happens when, let's say, I don't have access to GitHub, but you correctly guess my username and password on that GitHub site. It still looks me up in LDAP. It still says, yep, those are valid credentials. But then it looks at my role. I don't have GitHub. So it gives me this, you do not have the necessary permissions. So if I'm trying to attack GitHub, this isn't very useful. 
uh, because I, I can't access it. But what it is useful is now I have these network credentials. And if you can find lots of sites like this that are associated with the network, like the same reason you do all the subdomain enumeration, is if you can find error messages like these, you can attack some arbitrary site and apparently look like you're not getting in and then use, and once you figure out the credentials, you just go to the site, site you want. So you're indirectly doing it. So there's a long technical explanation of what I just said or kind of thrown out there. But um, you know, this does happen. So GitHub was a, was a good example because it, you know, it, it was a flaw for them. So for you know, uh, not a real username and password, I get invalid all that credentials. Even when I use a valid username and uh, invalid password, I still get uh, invalid LDAP login credentials. But when I do find a match and they just don't have access to the GitHub group, you know, I get this weird random message. So that kind of gave me an idea that, you know, that, that, that was there and that I was able to use these credentials at other places. Uh, so this is the same thing, but with timing. I think it was a video, but I'll probably just, it's, it's a long video. The, GitHub fixed this, and they got rid of the error, but it still actually took, there was still a 10-second delay, so it was just timing-based uh, enumeration, but it's, it's really just that. It's just me logging in, and it takes 10 seconds. So. Um, so defenses against this, it's just really going through all of your, uh, your web forms and seeing how they respond to the different types of input. Invalid username, valid password, so on and so forth, and for this one, even those who are not in the same group. All right, then uh, the last password attack is MFA half-guessing. So if your application does have MFA, make sure you have it everywhere uh, because the idea is some applications only prompt you for the second factor once you get the first factor correct. So like for, for Microsoft, you know, if you, get the, if you get the password wrong, it tells you the password's wrong. If you get the password right, it says approve sign-in request. So you know, that it, it prompts you for the second factor. So at this point, I know the person's password because it's prompting me for the second factor. And if you don't use MFA everywhere, then I can just go to wherever you use that initial password and try it. So always prompt for a second factor. All right, so now these are the cooler one-off ones. Uh, so these are complete authentication or authorization bypasses. So I'll give you three different stories uh, where it happens. There's no great framework for finding these type of things because all web apps are different. So I got three examples. I got one that, you know, authentication authorization bypass via uh, host header manipulation. I got one that's a portal protected app. Um, and I'll kind of, a, I'll go into what a portal app is. And then I have a, a glued application, which is taking an open source project and merging it with some COTS product for, for whatever reason. All right, so the first one. Uh, this is sort of the summary of how things went down. I don't have access to the web application. I did my, my Google dorking, I did my search enumeration, and I found a few different login paths. I found the slash login, and I also found a slash welcome for this, for this example site. Um, when I went to the login page, I could see that the host header was echoed within the application. Uh, and then changing the host header basically gave me full access to, to the app. And so here's the way it went down. So I went to the site, I went to the login screen. Um, you can see the arrow where it says the host name was here. Uh, for those who don't know what a host header is, when you make an HTTP request, when the browser does it, it's just a required header, and it's typically the domain name of the system. So if I go out to login at example.com, my, uh, my GET request would go to slash login, and my host would be example.com. So that's, that's the case here. So the host name was there, and it's, it's kind of strange to just have it randomly show up there. So this is just sort of, you know, I mentioned earlier that I found another path. So I found login and I found welcome. So sometimes in applications you get really lucky and you can just skip the login page and go straight to the welcome page and it'll just work. This wasn't one of those cases, you know, so I made the request out there and it gives me a, a 302 response. So it redirects me back to login. So 
no work there. So I decided I would change the host header. So I changed the host header, and this is this is a screenshot of Burp. So I'm doing uh, you know request modifications. So each time I make a request, it's going to add the host host 127001. Um, it did get echoed like like it was supposed to. And you know when I tried making this request though, it still sent me back to the login page, so that didn't work. So next, I tried localhost. And when I went to welcome this time, the response you'll notice was a 200. So it actually let me go to that page instead of redirect me back to login. And when I went there, I know there's a lot of red, but you know, it gives me this administrative link section and it makes me the, the web administrator. So if you notice at the top, you see it says local machine. So this was some sort of lazy developer shortcut that if you're on the local machine, then you must be the developer and therefore you, know, you can have full access to the app. All right, so obviously the takeaways is don't do that. Um, but you know, if you're a tester, testing the host header, see how it responds to different input, just a good thing to do. All right, so the portal application. So a portal app is like, uh, you know when you start with a new company, they give you access to, to some web portal where your credentials work, but within there you don't have access to anything. You might have access to like a timesheet or something like that, but you don't have access to like accounting or HR or whatever other systems might be in there. So it's just like you have access to the app, but you, you're not a part of any groups. And so that's what, that's what this case was. So in the, I was able to actually directly browse to the portal application that I wanted to go to because you know, I did some search engine enumeration. I found there were other links in there that I didn't have access to, but I could browse directly to them. Um, but when I went there, it just told me everything was unauthorized. Uh, so whenever you go to a page, JavaScript typically loads, and sometimes JavaScript gives away different URL paths that exist. So I read the JavaScript and I navigated to you know, a few different pages. Couldn't do anything, I read more JavaScript and eventually I had access to the app. So here's how it went down. So once again, this is, like a, this is the IBM portal. I don't know if it has a special name, but uh, I'm within the IBM portal. If I had access to applications, I'd have all these little buttons that would show up. Like I said, I could directly browse to a particular application that I found via search engine. So I went to this application slash login and it tells me I'm unable to do anything because I don't have a contractor ID. So bummer, I read some JavaScript and I went ahead and went to a different page. So I went from <laughs> slash login to slash welcome and it, poof, it logged me in. So you know, now it says welcome me, it says a bunch of other stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it let me in, so that's really cool. But unfortunately I tried clicking on a few links, there was like some search links and browse links within this page and I couldn't do anything still. So each button I clicked, it just gave me back to that same ugly error message. So I read more JavaScript and I eventually came to this page. And this page let me do things. So it was actually let me look up individuals and first and last names and got a whole bunch of PII out of it. So, you know, from having, from like this was a self-register portal. So anybody on the internet could register for this particular portal, didn't have any access, but you could eventually get there. So big exposure. All right, so don't rely on the portal itself for authentication, especially if you open it for everybody. Um, know that there's a possibility that somebody can directly browse to things and that things could be implemented incorrectly. Like in the case of this app, they, they one relied on the portal. So like I had authenticated the portal, so that meant I could just go to this other application and it just read that cookie and kind of logged me in. And then it didn't make sure it protected all of its URLs um, requiring the logins. All right, so this last one, uh, I call it the glued application because it had an open source, um, you know, it was an open source content management system and this company, they had to put on a semantic authentication piece because, you know, like auditors require you to have all of those password requirements, lockout requirements, all that stuff. And this open source 
uh, content management system didn't have that, so they, they stuck this semantic thing on the front end. Um, and you know, I, I didn't know that at first, but I, I, there was a cookie that came with this that kind of gave me an idea that it was using an open source framework. And if you see something like that, you want to download the framework and, and take note of all the things that you can do. So I took note of the login location and I tried to just manually browse that login location thinking maybe, maybe the semantic thing's there, but I can just browse to the other part. Uh, eventually I was able to modify the request method. So I've talked about gets and I've talked about post. Uh, and I was brought to actually at that login page that I saw and at that point I could just log in and is any user without the knowledge of the password. So here's you know, the, the HTTP request response pair. I'm going to this, this site, the slash is just the root directory uh, and it automatically will redirect me to semanticauth.example.com and it sets this cookie and this cookie let me know that it was an open uh, source framework because ELGG, I can't actually remember what the framework was but ELGG, if you look it up, you'll, you'll find out it's an open source framework. So it gave me this semantic auth screen and this is, this is, had all the bells and whistles of a secure thing. You had to have long passwords and complicated and it locked you out. All right, so once again, when I downloaded that framework, I saw that when I logged in locally to my application that I downloaded, I go to slash login. So I'm like, all right, let me just try to go there. So I went there, unfortunately it still sent me back to that you know, semantic auth page. And at this point I, I kind of thought like, how, how did a developer write this piece? Like, did they say that anytime somebody goes to this resource, it's going to redirect them? And I said, okay, well, maybe they did it in such a way that uh, anytime that it was a get request, you wouldn't get them. Because you know, when, you, when you're browsing to a site, it's always get. You don't do a post, you don't do anything else. So it turns out, I can make anything other than get, and when I went to the login, it didn't redirect me, it actually sent me where I was supposed to go. So it gave me this login screen. And at this point, you know, at first I, uh, I tried a few, a few like random usernames and stuff like that and I'm like alright cool I can, I can bypass account lockout here because things weren't working but once I tried a, a, valid, uh, a valid username um, it just let me in so it let me in as, a, as the administrative user I just had to as long as I use a new good username in this case oh, I've locked it out but yeah it just let me in as the administrator and, and the way the web app was actually set up was once you once it authorized you from that semantic spot it made a call to that login page that I was just on with just the username. So it, author it, it basically authenticated you in Semantic and then it authorized you on that username spot there. So it turns out all that spot needed was a username and once you get in, so again, administrative access to the application just by doing nothing. So once again, public app um, and go from zero to, zero to admin. So uh, takeaways for all this, you know, or for the glued application at least, as you look for components that are part of the known framework, download it and, and try to do your best and think how could somebody screw it up. All right, so that is the talk. I've covered all of that stuff um, from, from recon to user enumeration to everything in between. Um, questions? Anybody? All right, thanks. Special thanks to the team at B-Side San Antonio for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to San Antonio, Texas for their conference, it'll be well worth the trip. For the panels and the topics covered are just a small amount of the action. There's also, also the activities and the contests, as well as the networking available with the other attendees. That is the true payoff. So, our loyal listeners, if you'd like to know more about this journey we take weekly, Please feel free to check out our homepage at dangerousminds.io or go to our Facebook page at facebook.com 
forward slash Dangerous Minds Podcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on our DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like us to add to it, please let us know about it. Email us at info at dangerousminds.io and we'll be glad to add it to the list. Now, all of us want to thank you for joining us as we further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, network security, and lock sport today. Though, if you like the programming that we share and or the work that we're doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a sponsor, Patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. Also, please subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Once we get enough subscribers to reach 100 subscribers, we'll be able to claim a unique URL, which makes it so much easier for people to find our YouTube channel. It'd be something similar to youtube.com forward slash dangerous minds. So, as, as always, please feel free to reach out to us with any questions or comments, and perhaps one day we might talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know it is dead.